We are going to continue our study through 1 John. This is a study which Pete started a few weeks back. And we're going to just pick up where he left off and continue today. So we are currently in chapter 5. So it's 1 John chapter 5. If you have your Bible, then uh, please turn there. And we're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we contemplate the implications of your word, Lord. We pray that your spirit would speak to us. We pray that you'd give us insight and understanding. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us to make application to our lives, Lord, that we would uh, not be those who are hearers of the word only, Lord. Let us be doers of it. And we pray that the truth of the gospel would just sink into our lives and just infiltrate every aspect of our lives, Lord. Let it sink in deep and let your word, your living word, have a true and deep effect on us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 1 John, um, just a little intro here. 1 John is, is one of the general epistles, which means that it's a letter which was written not to a specific church or group of Christians, but it was written to all the Christians in that time. And, uh, you know, as opposed to like Paul's epistles to the Galatians or Ephesians or other letters that were written to specific churches, this one is written to Christians in general. He wanted everybody. This was the message that John wanted to share with all Christians. He wanted to encourage them and challenge all the believers with this message. And, of course, this message speaks to us today just as well in the same way because the principles that are taught here are were inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore they are eternally relevant. Essentially, John, in this letter, he is calling all Christians to get back to the three basics of Christian life, which are these, the true doctrine, submitted living, and fervent devotion. So I'll say that again. According to John, these are the three basics of Christian life. True doctrine, Submitted living, as in submitted to God, and fervent devotion to God. I think that if we, we get down to the heart of what John is saying to Christians in this letter, I think it really strikes a chord with a lot of us who are living today, especially in America, because uh, it is essentially a call to a sincere and real faith. Not a faith that's made up of 
Hallmark card platitudes and, and cute cliches, but a faith that has real substance. Um, you know, in the society we live in here in America, you know this, we get bombarded by marketing all the time. So much, right? And what marketers do is that they, they tug at our heartstrings, right? They tug at those deep feelings and desires that we have. And they make these big, gigantic promises. Yet they almost always leave us unfulfilled because they're incapable of actually fulfilling those promises that they make. Usually they even have no intention of doing so. They just make these big promises because they know that we have these desires inside of us. And so they kind of play with those things in order to, you know, achieve their goals as marketers. And the result of this is that we live in a society which is more and more longing for reality and substance. Last week, I, uh, I took my wife, Rosemary, to the dentist. So we went online, right? And we were like looking for a, a low-cost dentist over where we're staying. And uh, so we found one. We went there. And seriously, they were super friendly. They did a great job on Rosemary's teeth. We were very satisfied. So this week, right, we get a letter in the mail And this is a handwritten letter from Dr. Brian, the dentist. And it says, Rosemary, we're so glad that you began a relationship with us. And we want you to know that we don't just consider you a client. We consider you a friend. And yours truly, Dr. Brian. Okay, so I have to tell you, when I first saw that letter, I was pretty upset. Because I'm thinking, why is Dr. Brian writing a letter to my wife. Brian can go get his own wife, leave my wife alone, okay? She's a married woman. He's telling her that he wants to have this, like, he wants to develop a friendship with her, hang out with her. No, Dr. Brian, go mind your own business. We just looked you up in the phone book, you know? And, uh, and being the spiritual person that I am, I, uh, you know, a scripture came to my mind. I'll share that with you right now. It's Proverbs 6.34 from the NIV. It says that uh, jealousy, uh, for jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. (laughs) So I was thinking that maybe I should share this scripture with Dr. Brian. But then, you know, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and revealed to me that maybe that wouldn't be the best thing to do. After examining the letter a little bit more closely, which I did, uh, and thinking it through, you know, I'm pretty sure that Dr. Brian didn't actually write this letter himself because it looked like a lady's handwriting. And, uh, and I'm pretty sure that they send one of these letters out to everyone who gets their teeth fixed there. You know, it's part of their marketing plan to get people to come back. But this is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? That they pull on people's heartstrings, right? The deepest longings and desires. They, like, for example, here, the desire for friendship and companionship. But inevitably, they leave those people unfulfilled and empty because they're making promises which have no substance or reality behind them to back them up. Now, I'm sure that Dr. Brian's a nice guy, but I wonder what would happen if people, a bunch of his clients, would just take him up on that, you know? Like, they just show up at his house unannounced, like, Dr. Brian, I got your letter, and I'm so glad that you want to be my friend, because I really need a friend right now. And you see, Dr. Brian, I'm going through some tough times, 
We're going through a crisis, and I really need someone to walk through it with me, so I was so glad when I got your letter. And from now on, I'm just going to be blowing up your phone with text messages, and I just call you anytime because we're friends, you know? And just, you know, Dr. Brian, I don't think that's really what he had in mind when he told people that he wants to be their friend. So we live in a culture that is more and more characterized by shallowness, meaning shallow commitments and shallow relationships. And the result of that, again, is that there are more and more people who long and desire something that has reality, something that has depth, something that has substance behind it. And, uh, you know, so many things we encounter in our society, uh, especially nowadays, they're like cotton candy. They just look all big and fulfilling, and you just see it at the fair, and you're like, that's what I need. And then you bite into it, and it just kind of disappears because it has no substance. You know, so many people... uh, do so many activities and hobbies in our society, all of which, you know, they're interested in, all of which they enjoy, but they're not really super committed to any of these things, and, you know, they do them when they have some extra time or when it doesn't conflict with anything else in their schedule. And the trap that so many people fall into, I believe, as Christians, is that they can begin to treat their Christian faith like just another hobby, that they have, that they're interested in, that they like doing, but that they're only like halfway committed to. Our Christian faith, and this is the message of John here in this letter, is that our Christian faith needs to be based on truth rather than being just another therapeutic thing that we do to make ourselves feel good. John in this letter, he's calling us to a sincere and real faith, and he's pointing us to Jesus as the object of our faith, as the substance And he's calling us to really consider the implications of the gospel. And think about what it would look like if we really allowed the gospel to sink deep into our hearts and penetrate our lives completely and really affect the way that we live. So again, the three basics of Christian living, according to John, are true doctrine, submitted living, and fervent devotion. He's calling Christians to grow in faith, obedience and love. But here's what I want you to get as we, uh, as we get into this. Although this letter is a call to a real and sincere faith, this letter is not a list of do's and don'ts. And that's important. This is not a letter in which John is telling them, you know, all right, people, we got to pull ourselves together and do a better job of being Christians. Because honestly, you know, that's the message that you hear sometimes. Come on, guys, let's do better, do more got to do more. you got to try harder. Well, that's not what this letter is about, although it is a call to a sincere and real faith. Rather, this letter, I would call it a manifesto of done. It's a manifesto of what Christ has done for you, what God has done for you in Christ, not what you have to do for God, but what God has done for you in Christ. And the idea here is that as you behold the glory of God, as you have been born again to new life in Christ, and as God's Spirit is forming us into the image of Christ more and more, day by day as we walk with Him, we will begin to live differently. So many people get this backwards, right? They think that they need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and try harder and do more and in order to grow as a Christian or to win God's favor. But what First John tells us is that it's all about seeing and receiving what Christ has done for you, and letting that just sink in deep. And as it does, it will affect the way that you live. It will change how you live. 
throughout this letter and in this section as well, John talks about the things that true Christians do. The marks of a true Christian. Now those are not to be confused. It's not, it's not things that you must do if you want to be a true Christian. But the things that true Christians just naturally do. Without even thinking about it. These are the things which characterize those who have been born of God, as John puts it. Doctrine is important. That's why he starts, one of his main points here is true doctrine. Doctrine is important. Having good theology is important. That's why it's so important to study the word. Having good theology is important. Why? Because theology, doctrine, translates directly into actions. See, every person in this world has theological beliefs. They have doctrinal beliefs. Whether they recognize them as such or not. A big part of what makes up a worldview, you know, it's such a buzzword, is worldview. But a big part of what makes up a person's worldview is theological in nature, right? It's their underlying convictions about God. Even if they don't believe in God, that itself is a theological belief. It's a, it's a theological doctrinal belief. And those underlying theological beliefs that all people have, they have a big impact on the way that they live and the things that they do. And John's goal, because he knows that doctrine is important, is to lay out for us true doctrine. Because true doctrine leads to real and living faith. And real and living faith is manifested in submitted living and fervent devotion. So in this section we look at today, there are two main doctrinal themes that John lays out for us. Uh, The first, in verses 1 through 5, is the idea of being born of God. We're going to talk about that. And the second in verses 6 through 12 is the doctrine of the person of Jesus. So we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 5 once again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John again uses this phrase, he used it many times throughout this letter. He's the phrase born of God, and he talks about those who have been born of God as opposed to those who have not been born of God. Being born of God, this is one of the many terms which the Bible uses, um, to describe this work of God, this miraculous work of regeneration that God does within an individual when they put their faith in him. You know, the Bible uses other terms to describe this same thing. We talked about this last week as well, actually. You know, Jesus himself told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Paul the Apostle referred to it as regeneration. And becoming a new creation, being transformed. In other parts of the Bible, it's mentioned as receiving a new heart. And here, speaking of that same miraculous work of God, John the Apostle refers to it as being born of God. And and John essentially here is saying throughout this letter, he's saying that he gives us the litmus test of those for those who have been born of God. He says, if you have been born of God, then these things will characterize your life. You will love God's people. You will obey God's commandments. You will overcome the world and the temptations of this world. And the implication is that these things, if these things do not characterize your life, then you need to do some serious examination. 
You need to do some you need to ask some serious questions of yourself about why those things are not characteristic of your life. Now don't you think this is interesting though? That in a letter which is written, which is addressed to Christians, that John presents a test for those who have really been born again. Why would he do that? When the reason is is quite simple, it's because of the simple fact which maybe you probably know, is that not everyone who believes in God, so to say, has actually been born again. That's not the same thing, right? For example, Satan believes in God, but he, we're not inviting him to be a member of our church, right? Like, he, he's not born again. Uh, when I was pastoring in Hungary, you know, in our church, our church was full of young single people. And, uh, and from time to time, you know, someone would come up and say, hey, I got this boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, and just letting you know. And we would tell them, you know, that's great. You know, we'd ask, are they a believer? Because that's important, you know. And sometimes we get the answer, yeah, well, you know, they believe in God. You know, he believes in God. And I'm like, well, that's, that's precisely the point, that believing in the existence of God, having some vaguely defined belief in a higher power or God is not the same thing as being born again by the Spirit of God, by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's two different things. Satan believes in God, but I don't want all the single ladies in the church going out with him either. You know what I'm saying? And uh, the other day, you know, I was talking to some people here in the church and telling them the story of how I I became a believer. Because I had a similar experience. It's kind of an embarrassing story, but I'll tell you anyway, for God's glory. All right, so I had this, <laughs> had this friend in high school who, uh, who was a girl, right? And I liked her a lot. So one day, I, I gathered up my courage. I used to drive her to school every day. I gathered up my courage, and I asked her to be my girlfriend. And I was super awkward, right? And so she said no, which that's the embarrassing part of the story. And, uh, and she gave me a reason. And she said, well, it's because I'm a Christian and you're not. Now, you've got to understand that I found that very offensive, uh, I was thinking, like, how could you say that? Because, in fact, I thought of myself as a Christian. And I even wrote her this angry letter in which I used the, the one Bible verse that I knew off the top of my head, which is, don't judge or God's going to judge you. And, you know, I told her, hey, who do you think you are uh, judging me and coming around and telling me I'm not a Christian? And, uh, and so, you know, I didn't talk to her for a while, which was really awkward because I drove her to school and home every day. And, uh, but one day, she brought her Bible and, uh, it, with her in the car, and she opened it up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. It's just the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says there, he says this. He says, she read this to me. She says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so she asked me, you know, she said, is that you? Are you that person? Is that going to be you on the last day? You think that you know God, but in actuality, you have no relationship with him whatsoever? You have no relationship with Jesus at all. And he's going to say to you, who are you? I never knew you. And of course I said, no, that's not me, because I was being stubborn. But the truth was that I knew she was right. 
Oh, she was so right. And that scripture, it just stabbed me through the heart like a knife, man. I, I didn't want her to know it, but it just killed me because I knew, oh, she got me. I wasn't expecting it, you know. And, uh, and I realized that day that even though I believed in God, I had never actually been born of God, as John puts it. And it was not long after that that by myself in my room, you know, I prayed and I asked God to take away my sins and I trusted for real in the finished work of Christ for me and I asked God to come into my life and give me a new heart and make me new. And I have to tell you, I was truly born again. And my life took a different trajectory completely, a new direction that day. And I found that the person who I was began to change my attitudes, my desires, my concerns, my feelings, my thoughts about things began to change. And when John here says that everyone who has been born of God loves God's people, and everyone who has been born again obeys God and lives a life submitted to his commands and desires, and everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, understand that this is not a checklist of things that you have to do. These are rather a list of things that are characteristic of the person who has been born again to new life in Christ. Because the person who's been born of God, they are a new creation. Uh, They have a new nature. And with that comes new desires, and it leads to a different way of living. And the point here is that people should examine themselves. All of us, we should examine ourselves and we need to ask the question based on these things, have I ever really understood the gospel for real and been born of God, born again? Because as John is alluding to here, there are a lot of people, even people who attend church and have some vaguely defined belief in God who don't really know the gospel and they've never been born again. He's challenging Christians, examine yourself. Think about the gospel. Think about the implications of it. And look at your life. Here's something I want you to remember. The point of the gospel is that God doesn't just want to change what you do. He wants to change who you are, fundamentally. I'll say that again. The point of the gospel is that God doesn't just want to change what you do. He wants to change who you are. He wants to make you into a new creation with a new heart. And once who you are has been changed fundamentally, then what you do will follow suit. It will change too. Not because you're striving with all your energy to be a good person and change your behavior and act good, but because God's Spirit is doing a work inside of you and changing you at the most basic, fundamental level. And that work is not a one-time action either. It's uh, the being born of God that sets in place a continuous work of the Holy Spirit in your life and he forms you and shapes you into the image of Christ. That's the ultimate goal because he is perfection embodied. In, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle talks about this work of God in us which John refers to as being born of God. So I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. You can Follow along in your Bible if you've got it. Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead. 
That's interesting, right? That's an interesting phrase because usually you can't talk about being dead in the past tense, right? You usually can't use the word dead in the past tense. If someone's dead, that's a pretty terminal condition. You either are dead or you will be dead, but you almost never use the word dead in the past tense, right? Like, oh, I was dead back in 1992, but it was really boring, so now I'm not, you know? You, you either are dead or you will be dead. But it, and check this out, it's only in Christ that you can use the word dead in the past tense. Obviously, this is not referring to physical death, it's referring to spiritual death. And, and it's telling us a profound truth. And that is that in, in our natural state, apart from God, humans are spiritually dead. And think about this, just kind of a side note here. The thing that distinguishes humans from animals is what? According to God's word. It's that we alone in all creation are created in the image of God. That's what gives human beings intrinsic value. Whether they're poor, rich, no matter where they live, they are created in the image of God. That's why they have value. And think about this, uh, that part of the image of God, right, that we have, one part of being created in the image of God is that we have an eternal soul. And, and that is why human beings alone, out of all creation, we have this innate desire to worship. We, we worship without trying to. You know, that's why John here, he says that, you'll see at the end of chapter 5, he says, watch out for idolatry. Because we have a tendency towards idolatry. Why? Because we have an innate desire to worship. It's part of being made in the image of God with an eternal soul. Animals don't have that, right? That's why your dog never prays before he eats. He just chows down. He doesn't stop to thank the Lord, you know? And uh, that's why your cat never builds an altar in your backyard to worship. That's why the neighborhood pets never gather together to have a worship service. Uh, They just don't care. They don't have any desire at all. What God's word is telling us essentially is this. Think about this. In your natural state, in a human being's natural state, they are spiritually dead apart from God. And what that means is that the natural man is essentially living on the same level as an animal only concerned with the temporal things of this world. So you were dead. But thank God that's not the end of the story. Amen? Let's read on in Ephesians chapter 2, the next two verses. But God, you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. This has to be one of the most beautiful, most profound statements in the whole Bible. Two words, but God. It means that God intervened. You were dead in your sins. You were terminally sick. You were lost. You were hopeless. But God, but God, because he loved you so much, he pulled you out of that pit and he gave you new life. He made you alive spiritually so that you could have life eternally in Christ. That is what it means to be born of God, as John puts it. And Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 8. He says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here we see what God's plan is once we have been born again or born of God. God doesn't just want us to be born again and then, you know, come into a relationship with him, and then that's it. 
and we just got to wait for death and hope we don't mess it up until we die, right? That's not it. He has bigger plans for us. He has a plan for us here and now, and we see what that is here in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 10 specifically, he says that the plan of God is that he would be able to express himself, his nature, through you. In verse 10, he says that we are God's workmanship. You know, in the Greek, maybe you've heard it before, this is the word poema, which, which means work of art. Right? I don't know uh, how many of you are interested in creative arts, but whether that's painting or music or dance or whatever, but I think we can agree that the, the purpose of art is expression. It is uh, the artist uses art to express themselves, express who they are, what they feel, how they see things. And that is what God wants to do through us once we've put our faith in Him. He wants to use us as works of art. He's the artist, we are the canvas. Use us as works of art through which he can express himself to the world. It says that he prepared good works for us to walk in them. And through those good works he, that he has prepared for us, God is expressing himself through us to the world around us. As we show love, because God has loved us, we're showing people what God is like. As we forgive those who sin against us because God has forgiven us, we're showing people what God is like. And as we bless people who don't deserve it because God has been gracious to us, we show people what God is like. And as we do those things, God is expressing himself to the world through us who know him. Jesus said this, he said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. As we express to people through our actions what the nature of God is like, we bring him glory. We seek to bring him glory, not to ourselves, and we bring attention to the artist. Just as when someone looks at a beautiful work of art, who are they amazed with? They're amazed with the quality of that canvas. That is a really good canvas. It must be from Europe, you know? No, they're amazed with the artist who was able to take simple materials and make something valuable, something beautiful. That's what God wants to do with you and I. He wants to take our simple materials and make great works of art out of us, through whom he can express himself to the world and bring glory and attention to himself as a master artist. The second doctrinal theme in this section, as I mentioned previously, is the doctrine of the person of Christ, the person of Jesus. Let's read from verses 6 through 12 again. This is he who came by blood and water, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. What the Holy Spirit wants us to know is that everything hinges on Jesus. That's the point here. Everything hinges on Jesus. Whoever has Jesus has life. Whoever does not have him does not have life. You cannot be born of God apart from Jesus. 
Therefore, it's important that we have a correct understanding of who Jesus is. And John tells us that Jesus is God incarnate. And that to deny him or to diminish him in any way is to deny the Father. And here we we have a presentation of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. The word Trinity uh, was coined by Tertullian. He was one of the church fathers who lived in North Africa in the second and third centuries. And, but the thing you need to know is that even before Tertullian, the church fathers, other church fathers, they recognized this fact that the Bible taught that God was three persons who were unified in one Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Tertullian was just the one who gave a name to it. And he did a good job, and that's why we still use it. And John here is telling us that you can't have the Father without the Son. You can't have God without Jesus. You can't say, I like God, I'm just not so fond of Jesus. I don't need to receive Jesus, I'm just into God. You can't do that. The implication, of course, being that Jesus is God, just as the Spirit is God. But what strikes me about this section as I read it is that John is not afraid to give us the negatives. He doesn't just say, whoever has the Son has life, and leave it at that. You know, when we're on Twitter, you want to tweet something like, whoever has a son has life, and leave it at that. But John doesn't just leave it at that. He goes further. He shows us the flip side of that truth as well. And he says, hey, whoever has a son has life, but I got to tell you this also. Whoever doesn't have the son, they don't have life. Not only must we be born of God to be children of God, but you got to understand the flip side of that is that that means that whoever has not been born of God is not a child of God. He wants us to get that. He wants us to not just uh, focus on the positive. We need to see the other side of the coin. You know, John doesn't back down from presenting the good news and the bad news. So often today, the pressure upon churches and the pressure upon preachers is to keep the message positive. Because, why? Because we don't want to bum people out, you know. Because if we bum people out, then they're going to like go to lunch. and They'll be all bummed out. And they'll be like, I don't want to go back to that church next Sunday because they made me feel all bummed out inside. You know, and then they won't come. And then the pastor will be bummed out. And it's just this horrible cycle. So they say, let's just keep it positive. We'll just say whoever has a son has life. And we'll just leave the other part out. But, uh, but here what we see is that John is more interested in presenting people with truth, making truth the substance of their faith, the, 